You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? I'll take it. I'm glad to see you guys. I still, I'm still seeing some new people occasionally. It's nice to see you guys again. I see some people coming back. Cool. Um, so tonight... We are going to be continuing our series that we've been in for a while. I think this might be a little bit hot. Mic. Hot mic. It's like hot plate like they say at Toro Loco whenever they're bringing you. Hot plate, hot plate. Um, I love those guys. What? I should stick to the notes. I apologize. Um, so we're con- continuing our series this evening called Bible Stories, subtitled Christ in the Old Testament. Um, I know I give you guys this rundown every single week, and it probably gets old, but there's usually a couple new people in the crowd, so I just want everyone to know what we're doing. Uh, Jesus, in the gospel, says that all scripture points to him, uh, and Colossians and Hebrews in the New Testament says that everything is a type and shadow, a foreshadowing of the one who was to come, um, referencing Jesus. So the Old Testament all points to Jesus. So what we're doing in this series is we're looking and seeing how uh, the most famous Old Testament stories all foreshadow and point to Jesus. So it's a simple enough concept. We were really creative with the name Bible stories. Um, so, so far in this series, we have, we've seen Genesis. That's all we've been in for, for weeks now. And we've seen Genesis trace the history of one particular family, um, namely Abraham's family. And, and throughout, we've seen how God has been faithful um, to begin to bring about his promises to this family, um, namely that there would be uh, a land given to them, uh, a nation would be Abraham's descendants. They'd be so numerous, they'd form a nation, the nation of Israel. Um, and that ultimately, all of the nations would be blessed through Abraham's lineage, um, referencing Jesus Christ being born through Abraham's line. Uh, so God, we've seen, we began to see how God is bringing that uh, promise or those promises about. Um, and this week, we are going to take a look at the story of Jacob's son, right? So last week we saw Jacob who wrestled with uh, Jesus and then got renamed Israel. And we're looking at Jacob's son now named Joseph. You guys know the guy I'm talking about, right? Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. Has anyone just seen that? It's just, it's musicals suck. Like, I'm sorry, I'm just not a fan. Except for Sweeney Todd, that's the only good one that exists. And Phantom of the Opera, because I like dark things. But aside from that, we're a little bit shaky. Um, so yeah, Joseph is the coat of many collars guy. And that's usually what he's remembered for, but that's just a very small part in his story, namely showing that his father liked to play favorites and favored Joseph over the rest of them. Um, But throughout Joseph's story, we're looking at his story this evening, we're going to see a a ton of suffering. I mean, for 13 years, Joseph was a slave or in prison, right? This guy suffered a ton. His brothers hated him. Dad thought he was dead, all kinds of stuff. We're going to see a lot of suffering in this story. We're going to see a lot of evil. Uh, specifically done to Joseph. We're going to see a lot of pain uh, out of Jacob and Joseph both. Uh, But by the end, this is what's cool, we are going to see that God received glory from all of it. Um, That God's plan uh, to rescue his people and ultimately save Jesus, that, that all this suffering was a necessary part in that plan. And that in the pain, in the misery, in the midst of the evil, that God was working the whole thing for good the entire time, though everyone involved was blind to it until the very end. Right? But through every single situation that we're going to look at, God is working something good. Uh, so a huge theme to this story, and I would argue to the entire Bible, um, is the providence of God. All right? So I decided to kick it old school and, uh, and read a section of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, because I like to party. Right? It's chapter 5, section 1, the couple Presbyterians we have in this church. It's also the Westminster Confession, chapter 5, section 1, because we Baptists stole it from you and made it better. Um, all right, so anyway, so here's what, here's what the, the Second London Baptist Confession says about the providence of God. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according unto his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. That's like one sentence, man. That's insane, right? Can we all agree on that? No, they don't write them like that anymore. 1600s. 
So basically, to sum that up, because I know we've got some theology nerds, I thought you guys might appreciate that. I know that that's helpful for me to look back to confessions, because our faith is indeed a confessional faith. I recommend you guys start reading some of the old Christian creeds and confessions. Uh, but what that whole little section that we just read is saying is that God, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, and governs all things without exception, according to his own will, to the praise of his own name. So everything is, is pushing toward God's glory. All things, from the greatest to the least. This is all human beings, all creatures, uh, good, evil, all of it is ultimately going to serve the purpose of God's glory. Because God is primarily concerned with his glory. And whenever God is concerned with his glory and we get on board with that, we benefit as his people. His glory results in the blessing of his covenant people, those of us who have faith in Jesus. Um, So I want you to keep this in mind as we consider um, all of the stuff that Joseph went through um, and the ultimate outcome of it, right? So nothing is outside of God's control. Everything is playing its part in God's bigger picture plan, right? So that's, that's one of the big themes that we're looking at here. So I'll level with you guys. Um, you know how usually I've been reading like whole chapters at a time, um, try to highlight one particular part of a story. Uh, we can't do that this evening because Joseph's story is 13 chapters long. And I thought really hard about irritating all of you and reading all 13 chapters and just praying and that being the end of it because the Bible can say things better than I can. Uh, but Autumn told me no. But uh, It's chapters 37 through 50 in Genesis. Go home and read them. It's fantastic. It's actually uh, one, of the, one of the parts of the Old Testament that reads like a story because it's a narrative. It's not like Leviticus. It's a lot easier to read. It's good stuff. Um, Leviticus, Leviticus is good stuff too. I should, I'm going to shut up now. It's all God's word. It's all good. Um, Leviticus is just kind of hard to read sometimes. Uh, But in light of it being 13 chapters long, I can't really read the whole account, right? Um, So I thought about it, and if I just highlight one part of the story, then we're going to miss the scope of the whole, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you guys um, what I believe is the biggest verse of the passage, and I hope you guys will write it down if you take notes, program it into your phones, and memorize it this week. Um, And then after we look at this first verse, then we're going to walk through the life of Joseph, and I'm going to jump from retelling it, into looking at passages that highlight some of the points that I think are huge in this story, right? So it's going to be a little bit different compared to what we're used to. I'm going to be jumping in and out of the Bible, doing some narration, uh, but that's okay to do something different because we're still learning from the Bible. I promise this is not just me. So anyway, I think the biggest verse, and, and some theologians say that this verse sums up the entire book of Genesis, which is a very strong statement to make, and I would argue this is one of the The biggest themes of the Bible is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, right? So memorize this one. This is good. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers who sold him into slavery, right, and done all these bad things, and then his family is end up uh, saved and rescued through all of the suffering that Joseph Joseph went through. And then Joseph says this to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So let's pray, and then we'll get into this story. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you for this story of Joseph um, and and what it's going to teach us about your sovereignty and our uh, perseverance and our suffering. God, I I thank you for that. Um, Holy Spirit, please use me as a tool um, in the mighty hands of God. Holy Spirit, soften the hearts of the people here that if they're believers, that they could hold fast to these truths that we're going to learn. And if they're an unbeliever, that they could see the sovereignty of this God and be drawn in to love him and worship him through faith in Christ. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to try to do this as quickly as I can. Right? This is 13 chapters. We're going to try to get up in like the next 10 or 15 minutes. So Joseph's story starts in Genesis chapter 37, like I said earlier. Uh, Joseph is Jacob's son. He is Jacob's favorite son because at the time he is the youngest son that Jacob has. There's going to be another one. I think it's Benjamin, I believe, it ends up being younger than Joseph. Um, but anyway, at the, at the beginning of the story, Joseph is the youngest. He is the father's favorite. And uh, Joseph is a, a little bit of a snitch, not really does anything wrong, but he goes out and he ch- his father sends him to go check on his brothers while they're working. He comes back with a bad report. Probably his brothers were being lazy or goofing off. If you've ever seen the DreamWorks Joseph movie, you know what I'm talking about? 
No one? Like a couple of you? Yeah, thank you, Deborah. You're the only one. Holly, you guys are the only ones that are helping me out. Um, right? Says, they're probably being lazy or something like that. And he comes back to his father and gives a bad report. And the brothers don't like him. Right? His dad plays favorites, so they already don't like him for that. And then Joseph, God gives Joseph a dream. And in his dream, uh, via metaphor, uh, God shows him his entire family, including his mother and father, bowing down at his feet. Right, which is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen later on. And then he goes and he tells them about the dream that God gave him, and everyone in the whole family gets really mad at him, like his mother and his father are mad at him. Um, and combined with the favoritism and everything, his 11 brothers despise Joseph. I apologize if I've been calling Joseph Jacob. I do that a lot. I apologize. If I do that, I'm talking about Joseph. Um, so his 11 brothers despise him. And one day, his father sent him back out to check on his brothers uh, as they worked uh, miles away from home. And the brothers see him coming from afar, and they decide that they want to murder him. <laughs> you think your family's messed up, right? Like, they're like, we're going to kill this guy. We can't stand this guy. And then the oldest, Reuben, is the only one with any grace at all. He opposes the idea and says, no, we'll, just, we'll put him in a pit for a while, and we'll figure out what we're going to do later. Just don't kill him, right? And then Judah... Which, funny enough, Judah is the worst one in this whole story. This is the line that Jesus is going to eventually come out of. Judah says, hey, I got an idea. We're not going to profit anything if we just kill him. How about we sell him to these slave traders, these Midianites that are coming by on their way to uh, Egypt? And they all agree. So they put Joseph into the pit, and they sell him to slave traders heading for Egypt. And then this happens, Genesis 39, 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar... An officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. Don't forget that. It's going to be a theme. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of, the, of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance." Right, which leads so Joseph, God's with him as he's a slave to Potiphar. Potiphar's a very high up guy in Egypt. God prospers Joseph. Um, so while he is a slave, God is still with him for certain. And then while at Potiphar's house, right? So Joseph is a good looking guy, right? Think like a little bit like me, uh, a little bit less weight, perhaps more like Brandon Pate. He's always talking about how good looking he is. Um, so so while he's at Potiphar's house and he's a good looking guy, he's an intelligent guy, Potiphar's wife decides that she wants a piece of the action, right? She's like, she's deciding to seduce Joseph, we see in chapter 39. Um, and Joseph is a godly man. He fears God, so he refuses to sleep with Potiphar's wife. So she decides to do the most wicked thing that she can think of in response, and she falsely accuses Joseph of rape, that he attempted to rape her, rather. And Joseph goes to jail because he's a slave. Who are you going to believe if you're the Egyptian guy of the house? Are you going to believe the slave or are you going to believe your wife? Genesis 39, 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Right? And then, so, so God, again, is with Joseph, showing him favor, even though he is now a slave who is in prison, falsely accused of attempted rape. And while in prison, in God's providence, um, Joseph meets, you guys probably remember this story, Joseph meets the cupbearer of Pharaoh and the chief baker of Pharaoh. Right? Who are also in prison. They're not just there hanging out. They're in trouble. Right? And they have these dreams that they don't understand. And God gives Joseph the interpretation. And Joseph always likes to make that clear. That it's God who interprets dreams. I'm just a, a vessel that he's using. Um, and whenever he interprets their dreams, he tells the cupbearer, Well, your dream means that you're going to be released in three days. Because Pharaoh is going to lift up your head and restore you to your position. And then he looks at the baker and he says, Pharaoh is also going to lift up your head. With a noose, right? Like, I don't know why he, like, worded it that way. Like, he just tells him, like, yeah, your head's going to get lifted up also. You're just going to be hanged. Um, 
think he could have broke it a little bit easier to the guy. Whatever, man. Um, and Joseph was accurate. Right? Joseph is accurate in this. Within three days, the cupbearer is back to being the cupbearer, and the baker is hanged. Um, but right before the cupbearer got out, Joseph said, hey, please remember me. Whenever you get out and whenever you get to, to Pharaoh, please tell him of my innocence, that I'm the one who interpreted the dream, right? that God is with me. Please remind him, uh, or remind him that I'm here and try to get him to release me. And the cupbearer goes and he's restored to his position and he completely forgets about Joseph. The man has no gratitude for what Joseph did in interpreting that dream. Um, doesn't recognize, he's an ungodly man. He doesn't realize that God is with Joseph and that's how he could interpret the dream. And Joseph stays in prison for two years. Wrongly, wrongly accused. Two years this cat is in prison. Right? And I don't care how good your life is, like if he's like in charge of all the other prisoners, you're still in prison, man. Like that's not cool. Especially if you're in there for no reason. Or at least no fault of your own. Because Joseph was in prison for a reason. But then one day, Pharaoh has a dream. And no one can interpret this dream, right? And the cupbearer hears about it, and he says, hey, I know a guy, <laughs> right? Like, he remembers Joseph, and Joseph is called out of prison and taken up to Pharaoh to help. And here's Pharaoh's dream. I'm going to knock over this violin someday. Um, anyone else ever get nervous whenever I start backing up rows? I apologize. Um, I, I digress. I'm sorry. I'm always scared to death. I'm going to knock that thing over, and I hear that those bows are really expensive. Um, and I'm broke. But Pharaoh's dream is in this dream, he has two dreams, one right after another. And in the first one, he sees seven healthy cows, right? They're huge, big, fat cows. And he, then he sees seven sick cows. And the seven sick cows um, consume the seven healthy ones. And then he wakes up and then has another dream, and he has seven good crops, right? Seven good, like, bales of crops, and then seven bad crops. And the, again, the bad consumes the good. And he can't understand it. None of his magicians or, you know, like these people who worship false gods. None of them uh, can help him out with the interpretation. And Joseph gives him one. And again, he stresses that it's God who gives him um, the interpretation. And Joseph says, what this dream represents. You've had two dreams to say that God is for certain going to do this. And here's what they represent. The, the seven healthy, good crops and cows represent seven years of good harvest, right? Fantastic harvest that are about to come. And then the seven sickly cows and the seven bad crops represent seven years of severe famine. Nothing is going to grow in Egypt. You guys are going to have no food in those seven years. So then Joseph, after telling, telling him this interpretation, uh, comes up with a plan to keep Egypt from being destroyed in the famine. And he says this in Genesis 41, 33 through 36. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. And that food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This is a good idea. Take a fifth of the crops every year and store them back so we can redistribute them out and people can come and buy it from, from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, uh, the Bible tells us, recognizes that God is with Joseph. This is, he can interpret the dream. This is a good plan. Um, and again, God has been with Joseph the entire time. And he appoints Joseph. He says, no one is higher in all of Egypt than Joseph except for me. Right? So Joseph is now right hand to the Pharaoh after 13 years as a slave, two of those years in prison. Then we see Joseph's plan to, to store the grain actually worked. And, and tons of grain is stored for the famine. And people begin to, from other nations to come into Egypt to buy the grain so that they didn't starve. Right? And among those people who came, Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery come to buy grain from Joseph. Right? The Bible's full of great ironies. Right? So like you can kind of feel the tension building. You're like, oh man, what's going to happen? Uh, so they come to buy it. And the brothers don't realize that it's Joseph. Right? They don't recognize him. It's been, it's been like uh, around 20 years at this point, I think. I'm sorry. No, it's, I'm getting my years mixed up. My bad. It's been a long time. Right? You go with me on that. It's been a long time since they've seen their brothers, or since they've seen their brother. Um, they don't recognize it's Joseph. And Joseph begins to, uh, he hides his identity. He doesn't come out and tell them, hey, guys, it's me, Joseph. What he does instead is he accuses them of being spies. 
because that's like the most logical thing to accuse someone of whenever they're coming through. He says, you guys have come to see how bad Egypt is so you guys can you know, measure out whether or not you can take us over. And he accuses them of being spies. They insist, like, no, nah, man, we're from Canaan. We have a, a father and one brother still back at home, and we have one dead brother, right? So they just start spilling their guts to Joseph, and they don't know it's him. They're, they're pleading their case. They're saying, no, we're from Canaan. We're not spies. And Joseph says, I'll tell you what, uh, we're going to see if this story you're telling me is true. I'm going to keep one of your brothers, Simeon. I believe it was Simeon. We're going to keep one of your brothers, and the other ten of you can go home. And uh, bring me back the other brother that you just told me about, the youngest one. And then whenever you guys come back, I'll release you all. Right? No harm, no foul. I'll believe your story if you bring the other brother back. Right? He wants them to prove their story to be true. What's cool is at the same time that Joseph is being hard on them, Right, and accusing them of stuff. The Bible also tells us that he is secretly giving their money back for the grain. Right, the money that they had paid him. He's showing them just unmerited favor. He's showing them grace, kind of like Jesus. Right, so he, he gives them all the grain that they bought and then has his servants stuff their money back down in the pouches. So he's being really kind to them, even though he's being hard on them at the same time. Uh, but then they go home and then they return to buy more grain with twice the amount of money so they can pay him back and whatever. Um, and they return with the youngest brother. And long story short, Joseph frees Simeon, who is a hostage. And then whenever all the brothers are together, right? So this is Joseph's plan the whole time. Is I'm going to get all of my brothers together here with me. And Joseph says this. Genesis 45. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. That's crazy. You guys didn't sell me. Like, I know you guys sold me into slavery, but God was sending me here the entire time. God had a purpose for this whole thing. Right? So he sees that in Genesis, or in, in Genesis 45. He tells me who he is, says that he believes that it was God the whole time. And then what's, what's really cool is Pharaoh learns that it's Joseph's brothers. And Pharaoh says this also in chapter 45. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beast and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So the children of Israel, right, 70 people at this time who would later form the nation, moved to Egypt where there's food. They're saved from the famine. Pharaoh says, leave, all your, leave your house, leave all your stuff behind. Don't worry about packing any of your goods. I, the Pharaoh, am going to make sure that you have everything that you need. This is what God's doing for this small nation of Israel so far, all through the suffering of Egypt. All right, and then Jacob, or Israel, comes uh, to Egypt, and he lives there for a while, and then he dies. And after he died, Joseph's brothers become very scared of Joseph again. Right, so maybe he was only showing us some grace here because dad's still alive. But now that dad's dead, what's he going to do? Right, so Genesis 50, 15 through 20, and then we're done with the story. We can get into some stuff. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's the crux of this whole story, that Joseph, in chapter 45, and then he affirms it again, that God is working in the midst of all of the evil and all of the suffering that he had to endure. So, 
a lot of this is going to be review for a lot of you, especially if you've been here for a while. Every time I preach on suffering, it seems like some similar points because the Bible is always on repeat because we're dumb and we don't listen. Right? Just laying that out there for you guys. All right, so just bear with me and please take this to heart. Right? I know that this is going to be review, but the Bible is not meant to necessarily crack our intellects open every time. It's meant to crack our hearts and teach us something about the God that rules over all things right? and point us to Christ. But anyway, all, all of us know evil, right? Like, we have, all, we have all done evil to others, right? If we're going to be honest with ourselves, we've all sinned against somebody, whether it's an unkind word or you stole from them or, you know, like whatever, uh, whatever it may be. We've all done evil, um, and we've also all been done an injustice by someone, right? I know people in this church. We have people in this church who have, we, who have been molested. We have people in this church who have been raped. We have people in this church whose family uh, hates them who have been abandoned by various family members. Right? This is real for us, right? So this isn't just some ethereal concept, right? This is like, this is right at home for us. We all know evil. We've all faced injustices, some of us worse ones than others, but everyone knows what it's like to be sinned against, and likewise, everyone knows what it's like to sin against somebody else. So we're, we're not just innocent victims here, right? We're just as guilty as the guy who sinned against us, just maybe of different crimes. Right? But again... We know evil. We can watch the news. We can see terrorism. We can see shootings. We can see racism. We can see blatant corruption in the political system and a ton of other arenas. Like, evil is real. It's something that we're all faced with. Evil is a very real thing. Right? And we can see an abundance of evil in this story, primarily evil that's done to Joseph. Right? He's hated unjustly by his family. Right? He may have, been like a, he may have like snitched on his brothers, but was that not the right thing to do, to, to give an honest report to his father? The Bible doesn't say he lied, it just said he gave a bad report. He told a dream that God gave him, right? a prophetic dream, told it to his family. Was that a bad thing to do? No. That's what he should have done. Right? He's hated by his brothers for no reason. He is sold into slavery, and they had no cause to do that to him. He's falsely accused of rape, something he did not do. He is jailed for two years. People forgot about him. Evil done to this man. And Joseph had done nothing to deserve this. He is a righteous man. And still yet, he suffered all of these things. It kind of reminds you of Job. That's another story for another time. But God was doing good the whole time. Right? Bear that in mind. God's doing good the whole time. So, so here's what I mean by that. God doing good. Don't forget that, jo- that Jacob, Joseph's father, was given the Abra- Abrahamic promise, right? That the Messiah is going to come through his line, which tells us that Jacob's family has to live through this famine that God was going to send on the region, right? So Joseph is going to be the one to rescue them from this famine um, as, in, as an instrument of God. Right? So Joseph had to endure this suffering and this pain in order that the Messiah would come, in order that the nations would be saved, you and I included, if your faith is in Christ. Had Joseph not suffered this, had God not ordained the suffering of Joseph in these ways, we would be going to hell. Because the tribe of Judah and all the other tribes would have perished in this famine. You see how important this is? So Joseph's life and his suffering was, was serving a much more eternal plan than just saving his immediate family. Something much more eternal. It's it's saving us, right? Because Christ comes through him. So everything was done so Christ would come. Now, what does that remind me of? I think it serves as a huge reminder to us. We don't like this, and it's turned into a cliche, but it's it's honest. It's biblical. It's this. In in the midst of our witnessing evil or suffering evil done to us, God has the bigger perspective than we do. And again, I'm not saying that that makes the pain go away or that makes the injustice of the evil any less. But God has the bigger perspective. Like I said, it was absolutely necessary. By the way, God is not arbitrary in making us suffer or allowing us to suffer. However you choose to look at that right now, we can talk about that later. But God is not arbitrary in that. It was necessary for Joseph to endure this so Christ would come. What does that tell me? It tells me there's no such thing as pointless suffering. Right? When I was an atheist, I used to have the whole problem of evil. You know, if God is good, why is there suffering in the world? Because suffering is pointless. It's because I have a finite perspective, right? And I'm assuming an infinite perspective that the suffering is pointless. But here, the Bible is teaching us that there is no such thing as pointless suffering because God is at work, even in the face of evil. He is somehow, some way, working his plan to the glory of his name, like we read in the, in the Baptist Confession. 
but there is no way that Joseph could have seen this at the time he was being sold. He's 17 years old. 17 when he gets sold into slavery. He didn't see this. He couldn't see this eternal plan that God is working. Joseph didn't know about the famine that was coming. Right, That's years on into his slavery. He didn't know about the famine. He didn't realize a whole lot about the Messiah because God does this thing called progressive revelation. So he just knew somehow God's going to bless the nations through his family. Um, so he didn't understand much about the Messiah. Again, Joseph had a very finite view of things, just like you and I do. We cannot see the whole picture. And for, if for one second we, we claim that there's no good that can come out of whatever situation that we're in or whatever injustice that we see, then we're saying that we have the perspective of God, which is foolishness. Do you know if you're going to live or die tomorrow? No, God does, right? So just case closed, right? We don't even know what's going to happen five minutes from now. How could we assume that we know if any good can come out of this suffering? It's just foolishness. It shows our own arrogance, right? So again, like we have this finite perspective, but that doesn't change the fact that God is working good through all of it, like he was with Joseph. Right? And consider this too, just a freebie. If we get so wrapped up in our finite perspective, if you do that, then you're going to despair when you suffer. If you're so wrapped up in your own perspective that I can't see the good that comes from this, you will despair and you'll become bitter against God for allowing the suffering, I promise, I've been there, I've done that, you become bitter against God, and you also become bitter against those who wrong you. Because, because again, you're only looking about this close in front of your face. You're not considering an eternal perspective. But, on the other hand, if we step back and consider the providence of God, then there's peace for us there. If we can step back and remember Joseph's story, there's peace for us in the midst of our suffering, that God is indeed at work. Uh, there was a, a Puritan, I forget who it was, I don't know if it was John Flavel, um, he said providence is always read in reverse, like Hebrew, right? I thought that was kind of cute, right? Um, so what is he saying? Hindsight is always twenty twenty. whenever we're looking for the providence of God, right? So I can't see it as I'm in the midst of the pain or as someone is wronging me, but looking back, maybe I can see it then, what God was saving me from, what God was teaching me through this, what God was lining me up for the rest of my life, Right? So maybe we won't see how God is working in this life even, right? I'll I'll lay that before you too. Maybe you're going to suffer something. I don't know what it might be, and you'll never see it in this life. But one day, I'm convinced, whenever we see God face to face, we will know that all of his judgments were right, that his plan was infallible and good, and we'll be able to rejoice over all of the suffering. Like, Paul or Peter, I'm blanking right now, says that uh, what we suffer now is like nothing compared to the weight of glory that's building for us in the midst of this suffering. One day it will make sense, but it might not be in this life, right? So as Joseph is suffering, he is being moved towards Pharaoh's right hand, and he could not see that he's being moved towards Pharaoh's right hand. And likewise, God is moving us towards glory in our pain. First Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, your salvation. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I use this one all the time. Whenever we talk about suffering, I know. What is he saying? God is moving you towards glory so that one day Christ will praise you. And when I say praise you, that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. But he's saying, look at the good gold. Look at the pure gold that I have made. So just as Joseph is being pushed towards the right hand of Pharaoh, God is pushing us towards glory in the midst of our suffering that we might not be able to see it at the time. All right, so I know I've laid some stuff out there so far. It makes us a little bit uncomfortable. God brings the suffering on us, right? Take that up with the Lord. In Isaiah, he says, I bring the calamity and I bring the peace, right? I tell the end from the beginning, right? So God brings all of these things straight up. So I know that's uncomfortable. But here we have a huge God working his plan And he is allowing us to suffer in order to accomplish that plan. But I love, I love how the Bible never paints God as cold or uncaring. So again, I know this sounds like a paradox to a lot of us. God will allow me to suffer. He will foreordain my suffering as part of his plan. But God is not cold or uncaring. I want you guys to know this. 
If you're in the midst of something right now, right, or someday you're going to be, so there are people who are suffering, and then there are people who are going to be suffering later. Just bear that in mind. Um, God is not sitting on his throne with, with folded arms saying, deal with it, it's my plan. That's not what God is doing. In chapter 39, we were told three times, I believe, three times that the Lord was with Joseph as a slave in prison. The Lord was with Joseph. God had not forgotten Joseph in the pain. In the midst of it all, God had not forgotten him, right? Joseph's brothers had forgotten him and assumed him as good as dead, I would imagine. Uh, Jacob thought his son was dead, not that he ever forgot, but like that part of his life is over, trying to go get Joseph because he's gone. The cupbearer forgot about Joseph, right? So like he has nobody. He is a, a, a Hebrew slave in the midst of Egypt, Dirt. Everyone's forgot about him. He's counted as nothing by everyone around him. But God was with him. God was guiding every step that Joseph was taking. And he was providing for him in the midst of his slavery and in the midst of his imprisonment. And he was prospering him through it. For 13 years. Now because of this precedent with Joseph... Right, that in the midst of this slavery and oppression that God is with Joseph, then I can say with confidence to any of you here who are suffering, I can say to you that God has not forgotten you. I know that that sounds like a cliche, but again, the Bible works with a lot of precedents. Right? God doesn't, the Bible's really clear. God doesn't play favorites, so if he does it for one, or he's with one in the midst of suffering, that means he's going to be with all in the midst of suffering. Right? We're given that promise all over the place. Psalm 46, right? lots of places. Um, so I can say to you that God has not forgotten you. Everyone else may have abandoned you and forgotten you, and you might feel alone. But Jesus says this, and I have had to hold on to this so many times when I felt alone. Matthew 28, 20, the last half. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Think about that. I am with you always to the end of time. You are my bride. I will not forsake my wife. If you're in Christ, he's saying, you are mine. I am with you. I care for you like a husband cares for his wife. I will not let you go. I will not let you out of my sight. I will guide you. I will care for you. I know it hurts, but I'm not abandoning you. He's a good husband. He's a faithful husband. If your faith is in Christ, you're his bride. And then God gives us this very general uh, promise to us in Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He's saying that to people who are getting ready to be like just ravaged by Babylon. He's saying suffering is about to come. But, but be not dismayed. I am with you. I am your God. So God is so intimately involved in every detail of your life. He is molding you. He is keeping you. He is present with you. Right? He is not sitting back as a spectator. Right? God is not a deist. Right? He's not a deistic God. He's not sitting back watching the world spin saying, I'm not going to get involved. He is working in you and around you, though you may not see it. I mean, just another thing to consider. Have you, ever, have you ever thought about how God weaves together the sufferings of his people with the salvation and perseverance of his people. <laughs> so again, we're going to talk about our suffering serving a higher purpose within the plan of God. This is, this is about the easiest way sometimes for us to see how our suffering uh, was, was within the plan of God and how God was using it. Right? So we see Joseph suffers and saves his family. Right? We see Jesus suffers and dies innocently in order to save God's people. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-7. through 7, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. God uses our suffering to providentially comfort and encourage others 
um, with us or down the road, right? I think that's one of the things that Paul is saying. I know God will comfort you. I know that if we suffer, it's for your comfort. And in that, that book, Paul talks about a lot of suffering that he's endured for the sake of the gospel. And so maybe in your pain, maybe, I don't know this, but maybe in your pain, God is growing you so that you could see his sovereignty and see his providence and continue trusting him and then down the line encourage another saint to persevere as you have by God's grace. And in doing so, glorify God. Remember in that confession, he says everything is for the glory of his name. He ordains everything for that end. You know, we've all seen this kind of a thing. right? Someone who deals with who has dealt with a lot of death in their lives. Uh, life then takes uh, a younger person who is dealing with death for the first time under their wing and teaches them how to suffer well and, and just constantly encourages them to, you know, that, that God is sovereign, this is providential, and that he's still a good, compassionate, gracious God. Right? We've all seen those kind of things. We've all heard those kinds of stories. So again, God interweaves our suffering with the perseverance of his people, with the comfort of his people. So whatever we suffer isn't pointless. Again, I make that point again. Whatever you suffer is not for no reason. It is serving a much higher purpose than we can see. It's, again, it's the finite perspective versus the infinite perspective. God knows what he's doing. So I, I hope that you guys can see um, a, a huge overarching theme to this whole story. And it's this. The providence or sovereignty of God in the midst of and over evil. Right? That God rules over the good and the bad. That he actually ordains both. Right? So let's all get a little bit uncomfortable here for a second. Right? Joseph, Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Does he say God turned the evil into good? No. He says, at the same time, concurrently, you meant it for evil, and my God meant it for good. God didn't take the evil and make it good. He intended the whole thing for good, while everyone else intended it for evil. Right? And Joseph being sold and jailed and mistreated, it was the plan. God didn't say, oh man, what am I going to do now? And scratch his head and say, i got to whip up something to turn this good. He said, no, this is the plan that Joseph will, will suffer all of these things in order to save many people alive. He's saying, this is the plan. Now bear in mind, those who did the evil were still responsible. Why do I say that? Because they weren't trying to do God's will. They were sinning against God in doing all of this. They weren't trying to do His will. But God is so in control that their wickedness actually serves the plan. Like some of you might think that this is irreverent, um, and I, I apologize. I imagine that God working this way, saying, I'm sovereign over the evil, and even the evil and wickedness of men serves my purpose, is like God giving like a middle finger to Satan and sin. Saying, like, you think you've got something on me by getting them to sin, don't you? Or you think you've got something on me by rebelling against me? It's all going to work out to my glory. And you're still responsible for the sin. This is how sovereign that God is. This is how in control that he is. Our God is sovereign over every act, every person, every molecule in existence. Right? So all that befalls us, whether because of an injustice done from a person or just from life circumstances that suck, all of it is ordained. All that befalls you is ordained by God. And it's in accordance with God's will for his purposes. Here we go. Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Right? All means all in that verse. All things, including evil. So God controls all. In the words of Martin Luther, the devil is God's devil. Right? Super provocative, right? Think about that one for a while. The devil is God's devil. What is he saying? Satan is subjected to God. Whatever evil, whatever wickedness Satan himself works, it's part of the sovereign plan of God. Because that's how in control he is. That Satan can't thwart him. Satan can't throw a curveball at him. It's all ordained. It's all part of it. This tells us that we're basically untouchable. Have you considered this, Christian? You are basically untouchable. You may suffer in this life, but whatever happens to us, whether by men or by life circumstances, it comes from our God ultimately. And he loves us dearly, so much that he gave his son for us. 
If he gave up his son for you, will he not also give you all things? Even in the midst of the suffering, would he not be intending your good through the midst, in the midst of it? In the midst of the face of evil, does he not have your good intention? God has the bigger perspective, and it is a good one. So I know that this sounds unnerving, right? I get it. I know you guys, you guys probably think I'm like the Antichrist up here talking about God's sovereign over evil, and he like foreordains evil acts. We'll get into that in a second. Um, but I know this sounds unnerving, but really, this, that's like the most comforting thing that I have said all evening. That God is sovereign over evil and that, that God, all things are foreordained and in accordance with his plan. Why? Why is that comforting? Because evil is not unrestrained. Think about that. Evil is not this chaotic force right, that just does what it wants. Rather, evil is subjected to God's rule and reign over all things. Evil is subjected to the creator. It is not free to run. God must allow it. God must ordain it. But evil is still evil. And James tells us God is not the author of sin. So I get that there's a paradox there, a divine paradox. I get it. There's some tension there. We can talk about that if any of you want to talk about it one-on-one. I don't have the time this evening. But God is not the author of sin, though he is sovereign over it. Sin entered the world by man's rebellion. You and I are responsible for sin. We all sinned in Adam, according to Paul. We are still responsible for sin. But sin and evil is subjected to God. And God will be glorified in all things in the end. So that tells us that evil and suffering will not have the last word. The glory of God will. And we, as his covenant people who have faith in Christ, we will be victorious in the end with Christ. Evil is not unrestrained. It is subjected. Remember that when you suffer. This is all subjected to the authority of my God who loves me. Bear that in mind. So, how does this story all point us to Christ? That's the real question. So, we've seen God's sovereignty in the suffering, and we're going to get back to that in one of these points. But there's so much foreshadowing in this of Jesus that I don't want us to miss it. The first one is this. Salvation for the unrighteous comes by the suffering of a righteous man. (laughs) Joseph suffered so that his brothers and family might live. And he did no wrong to any of them. And his brothers sold him into slavery. Salvation for the unrighteous comes by the suffering of a righteous man. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verses 10 and 11, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Joseph is just a foreshadowing of the suffering servant who himself is righteous, but we would count him as smitten for his own sin. But really, he was being crushed by God the Father for our sin, right? So Christ the righteous was oppressed like Joseph and scorned and beaten and murdered and suffered the wrath of God on our behalf in order to pay for our sin and make us righteous in order that we might live unto God. The suffering of righteous Joseph points us to the suffering of the Completely righteous Christ. Second one. This has been the big theme. God's sovereignty over the wickedness of men for his eternal purposes points us straight to the cross of Christ. Straight to the cross. God was working through the wickedness of Joseph's brothers in order to save his people. Let's see what Peter says in Acts 2, 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
You want to see human responsibility, divine sovereignty, and the plan of God that can't be thwarted all come together? Look at the cross. You want to see how God works glorious things in the midst of suffering? Look at the cross. And that it's foreordained. God foreordained the most heinous sin of all time to happen. We just read in Isaiah. I did that for a reason. It was Yahweh's good plan to crush the servant. His good plan. It was foreordained. It was foretold. So God sovereignly used the wicked actions of men in order to accomplish salvation. And yet he said, you crucified him. And he demands them to repent. The cross stands as a reminder of God's infinite perspective and power where his sovereignty rules over all things, including the actions of men. And then thirdly, we see forgiveness given to Joseph's brothers, pointing us straight to Christ. Joseph freely and graciously forgave his brothers for their sins against them, and he did not have to. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So again, like I said in the beginning, just as we have all suffered evil, we have all done evil. And sinning against other people is primarily a sin against God. Right? All sin is, is breaking God's command, so it's vertical first before it's horizontal. Right? So we've all sinned against God, and, and, and we deserve to go to hell. Right? God's justice demands our conviction because we've broken his law. But free grace is offered to anyone who will confess their sin. Turn from it and believe the gospel that Christ has died in your place and has acquired pardon for you in the eyes of God the Father by his righteousness and his death and resurrection. Confess, repent, turn to Christ, and you'll receive forgiveness just as freely as Joseph's brothers did. So in the midst of suffering, right, to wrap this whole thing up, in the midst of suffering, expect God to do good. Though you can't see it, expect him to do good. Our God neither sleeps nor slumbers. He is always acting for his glory and our good. Find comfort in his sovereign rule over all things as you suffer because all is in his hands and we will be eternally safe and know that God is with you in the suffering. He is not cold and uncaring. He's not telling you to just deal with it. But according to the psalmist, Psalm 46, he is a present help in trouble. He's with you. So no matter what we face, we can know that we are eternally untouchable. Because God is sovereign, and nothing will befall us apart from his good will. I'll end with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. We'll go to a time of worship. Providence is wonderfully intricate. Ah, you want to always see through providence, do you not? You never will, I assure you. You have not eyes good enough. You want to see what good that affliction was to you. You must believe it. You want to see how it can bring good to the soul. You may be enabled in a little time, but you cannot see it now. You must believe it. Honor God by trusting Him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a sovereign God who is always in control, who is always ruling, who is always reigning, who is always with us, who does not sleep nor slumber. Father, please help us to trust you in the midst of our suffering. God, though we'll never have an infinite perspective like you do, give us the grace to be able to step back and say, God has an infinite perspective and I don't need to know what it is right now, but I can trust that everything is good because I can look at the account of Joseph, I can look at Christ crucified, and I can see that if he worked these horrendous evils for his glory, then he can work whatever I'm suffering for his glory. God, help us not just to know these things intellectually, but to hide them in our hearts so that when the day of trouble comes, when the dark night of the soul comes, that we can hold on to you and you alone. Thank you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen.